Well, if you turn in your Bibles, uh, in whatever form you have them, to Mark 9, beginning in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me. There's so much to this passage. The passage on the Mount of Transfiguration. And um, there's a link, actually, between what Mark shared with us in the prayer of confession from Psalm 46 in our passage this morning. Um, the, the Psalm 46 begins this way. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Very present. Now, that's one that should catch your attention. Like, Aren't you kind of present or not present, right? But if you think about it for a second, you know what that, the difference between those two things are. Present and very present help in trouble. There's, the, there's a note in my translation that says, God is our refuge and strength and a very present, and it suggests that it could also be translated a well-proved help in trouble. How is presence or help well proved. We've seen it before. We've seen his presence. We've seen the way that he has acted as a refuge and a strength over and over again. We've seen how he has drawn near to us in a moment of trouble. I would like to suggest to you that first of all, that's really good news right there. All right, already this morning we have heard help but also that this morning, our passage in Mark chapter 9 is actually an example, a well-proved example of Jesus' very present help, particularly to the disciples. They were in distress. Jesus has just told them. He's been showing them who he is, right? As he's going through this ministry, displaying power, standing up, peace be still. And they're freaked out of their minds, right? Right? Like, who is this that's in the boat with us? 
and he's multiplying bread, and they're like, they don't get it. They don't understand the numbers of the baskets that they're collecting, and they don't understand these demons that are crying out, but every time, Jesus casts them out, and so they're, they're amazed, they're confused, they're bewildered, and, they're, and yet they're also confessing that Jesus is the Christ, right? So there's a certain amount of strength that they have. And then, the one that they are amazed by, and even bewildered by, steps forward and says, okay, you've confessed the Christ. Now I'm going to tell you this. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise. And let me tell you right now, that messed with the disciples. We see clear evidence of that because Peter, who had just confessed the Christ, walks up to the Christ which means he's the anointed king, anointed by God himself, anointed king. Peter, ex-fisherman, walks up to Christ and says, uh, we need to talk. I need to rebuke the king anointed by God. There's no way that you're going to suffer, be rejected, or die. And I don't even know what this resurrected thing means. It's messed them up. They are in a time of of trouble. And then Jesus, after this, he, he himself rebukes Peter and says, no, this must be. And then he explains that if you would follow after me, not only is the Christ going to die, but you're also going to have to give up your life. There is no other way. And so they are in a place of distress. They are in a place where they need very present help in a time of need. And Jesus takes three, Peter, James, and John, right here at the beginning of our passage. He takes them up a trip, up a mountain, and what they find is this. In their distress, they find that Jesus continues to reveal that he is not what they had expected. He's going to continue to mess with their understanding and give them real understanding. Let me suggest that very present help of God is to do nothing less than show us who he is, not give us what we expect, okay? But between the, the witnesses of the prophets, the affirmation of the Father in our passage this morning, the revelation of his own shining glory, they're learning to listen to Jesus. And until they see the fullness of his work that he came to do in his death and resurrection, they're going to need to continue to listen. Let me suggest this as we pray. There is no greater comfort that the people of God could receive in any bit of our distress. There's no greater very real presence that we might have as a help than to listen to the Messiah. And when we listen to him, we're going to see glory revealed. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. That you would give us eyes to see who you actually are what you've actually said about yourself, what you've actually done, your 
kindness. You are kind to these three men, Peter, James, and John, in their distress to take them up a mountain and give them a glimpse of glory. I pray that you would be kind to us, that you would be very present with us, well proven in the midst of your church this morning. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah, we pray. Amen. The first thing that we're going to see this morning as we walk our way through this passage is probably the most evident thing to observe, and that is glory revealed. And this is good news, friends. This is a people, Peter, James, and John, that all, they're just downcast. All they're seeing is death and rejection, and they go up a mountain, and they get to see glory revealed, all right? Look at the passage with me. It says in verse 2, six days took Peter, James, and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves, just them, and he was transfigured before them, transfigured. The, the word is metamorphed, all right? He changed right in front of them, transformed. In our passage, we're told that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. These are not white clothes. These are, in and of themselves, glowing clothes. We're told in the other gospel writers that his face itself shone before them. There is a glory that are, is being revealed. And what they saw on this day was not a man in his human nature. It was light and glory that is beyond natural man. Jesus, just in doing this, he's revealing something to him. He is Jesus, the, the son of Mary, 30-some years old, walking around with flesh on, growing tired at times and needing to rest. He's Jesus the man. But there is more to Jesus, the man Messiah, than just flesh, an amazing man. Even an anointed by God, king man. He is the glory of God. Showing what a gift to give to the disciples in a moment where they're thinking, Jesus the man is going to die. He's showing them, oh, there's more to what happens in this man than what your eyes can normally see. There's glory taking place. Friends, that one of the first things that we ought to notice about this is that the Son is known by revelation alone. Notice this. He walks around and grabs people, takes them off to himself, and then reveals himself to them. He's doing with the, this, with the disciples particularly. We'll see why in a little while. But God is known because God has made himself known. Peter and James and John weren't sitting around and saying, you know, we've been observing some stuff about Jesus, and it seems that he's quite different than most. In fact, I think he might be the divine son of God. No. Jesus takes them off with himself and reveals himself to them. God has not been discovered list a few ways that we can reflect on this. And I think this is very practical, okay? 
God has not been discovered through some scientific inquiry. We've lifted up some rock and found God hiding there. Science is a great endeavor, but you won't find God hiding under some rock. We have not invented some powerful telescope. And there are people who are literally trying to do this right now. Vent a powerful telescope that can look off into the cosmos, and if it can look out far enough, we can find God hiding there, just outside of our sight. Something that can give us some sense of meaning and purpose, and even some meaning to our created order, out there, somewhere. We've not developed some creative mathematical theory by which we can finally explain the God who holds all things together. The, the God in the gap of the atoms. We're not going to find him there because God is not discovered by some human ingenuity or effort. At the end of every one of these searches or any other more religious-looking search that we might endeavor on, at the end of every one of these searches, we only find idols. Unless the God who is actually there makes himself known to us. Even Peter, looking around, trying to discover things for himself, found a Christ idol. Not the God who had revealed himself to them, but the God of his own making, the God of his own desire last week. One of my favorite pair of book titles are two books by Francis Schaeffer, all right? Francis Schaeffer, he has a book called The God Who Is There. Now, that's an interesting title. That is, there is a God, and he is the God who is there. There is a God, and he's the one God. There's not another God. There's only the God that actually is. The God who is the only God is the God who is actually, really there. All other gods are idols, gods of our own imagination, gods of our own fashioning, gods of our own desires, or gods of our own appetites. But they're not the God who is actually there. The second book title, after the God who is there, is He is There and He is Not Silent. How do we know the God who is there? How do we know Him? How can we distinguish the actually there God the one true God from the God of our imaginations. How can we not just say everybody has a perspective on who God is, and that's who God is to you? And Shaffer says, no, there is a God who is there. And he's actually, you, your image of him is actually what is real, or it's an idol. There's no other option. But how can we know if what we imagine of who God is, is who he actually is. Well, the God who is there has spoken, and he's told us who he is. He is there, and he is not silent. He's spoken, and specifically, he's spoken about himself. He has spoken to us about the great unknowable. There is nothing more beyond our knowing than God. And he's spoken about himself. Friends, this is called revelation. 
He has revealed himself. And the written record of that revelation is preserved faithfully, trustworthily for us in these scriptures. We have the revelation of the words and works of God in redemptive history from creation through the covenants with Abraham and Moses and David and the revelation through the prophets. And now we have his words, the words and works of the person Jesus Christ. And for all this, we have the sure testimony of the Bible that stands as the word by which we can know God. The God who is there. He is there, and he is not silent. The bottom line is this. We can know God. Friends, there is no more very present help than to know God. And through his son, we've not only known him, We've actually seen him. Human beings have encountered, touched, seen, and heard God. And on that day, on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw his glory. Glory in the actual face of the Christ. The Transfiguration is God revealing himself to us. But what is he telling us on this day? On this mountain in Mark, I would suggest that the transfiguration tells us two things. First of all, in the context on this day, as we're working our way through the end of Mark chapter 8, going into 9, the first thing that the transfiguration tells us is Peter is right to call Jesus the Christ. Good job, Peter. The Father has revealed this to you. You would make that confession. Jesus is no ordinary man. He's the anointed of God. He is the actual Messiah. But more than that, he shares the same radiant glory of the Father who sent him. Peter, you were right to confess that he's Messiah. But he is the fullness of the glory of God. Did you mean to confess that? You were right. But there's even more to know, more to be revealed. It's the first thing that the transfiguration tells us. The second is Jesus is right. Jesus is right that the Son must suffer. What's the most recent thing that the disciples have had to deal with in their understanding of Jesus? Jesus has just told them that though he is the Messiah, this is true, Peter, you're right, but the Messiah would suffer, be rejected, would die, and rise. And that's a difficult teaching for the disciples to understand and follow. And by taking these three disciples to the top of the mountain and giving them an eyewitness glimpse of his glory, he's also confirming to them that his testimony about himself is true. The glorious, radiant one on top of the mountain is the one who spoke those words that were so hard to hear just six days ago. They will need to remember this glorious day on the mountain in the days of suffering that are to come. Peter was right. And Jesus was right. And the Mount of Transfiguration is confirmation of these two things. Before we move on, I just want to look at the word metamorph. Just give you a little gift to go and, and spend time with the word this week in. The word metamorph. 
Transfigure, metamorph is not a common word in the Bible. There are two primary places that I would draw your attention to where that word is used. The first, right in your margins, Romans 12, 2. Romans 12, 2, the word metamorph, transfigure is behind it. And then there's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and this is one we're going to read this morning. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all, with unveiled face, go and look at the context, it's amazing. Speaking about Moses on the other mountain in which the glory of God was revealed. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, metamorphed, changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Why is Jesus giving the disciples this glimpse of his divine glory? Ultimately, it is so that they who see his glorious face will themselves be transformed with him. Friends, that goes from Jesus Jesus and all his glory being present to being very present. So present that his glory, his work, and his word is going to work an actual transformative metamorphosizing change in those who will listen to him. Just as Jesus' human flesh, let's remember what was glowing. Real clothes. Somebody made them. Some person made that cloth. And Jesus put that cloth on. And that flesh that grew was cells that grew, that is the body of Jesus Christ. And he glowed. And the clothing glowed human flesh on that day on the mountain radiated the glory of his divinity and all who follow after Jesus will also be transformed if we give the attention to the word of Jesus so that in our redeemed humanity we don't become something that's not human anymore But as redeemed humanity by the work of Christ alone, we too will shine with glory of the one who saved us and who by his spirit indwells us. Friends, that is very present help. I have days in which I feel very dark in the flesh. My body, I can feel it. It's wasting away. These are things that are are common to those who follow after Christ. But there will be a day when my redeemed flesh will be filled with the fullness of not my glory, my goodness, darkness, wasting. Be filled with his glory. And his spirit is a good deposit of that. That is good, present, very present help for this failing flesh. We need to keep moving. We're only on verse 4. <laughs> verse 4 says, And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I mean, obviously, right? I mean, they haven't been dead for like a thousand years or something. Um, both 
Elijah and Moses standing there with Jesus on a mountain glowing. Yeah, we believe in the resurrection because we say stuff like this. We think this actually happened. Like there was a mountain where this took place. Moses and Elijah and Jesus on a mountain. Both Moses and Elijah are great deliverers of Israel. Moses is a deliverer from foreign oppressors. Elijah is a deliverer from foreign gods. Moses and Elijah are are prophetic precursors who attest that Jesus is the Messiah. They they are they are run-ups run to the real glory. The last words of the Old Testament, Malachi, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the Old Testament closes with. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Next words. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What in the world are they talking about? What is the prophet Malachi talking about, about the coming of Moses and Elijah? Well, to understand that, why don't we look at what Moses and Elijah were talking about themselves on that day with Jesus on the mountain. Mark doesn't tell us. Luke does. Over in Luke chapter 9 also, in verse 30, it says, And behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of what? His departure, which was about which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What is on the minds of Moses, the great giver of the law? What is on the mind of the one who had rescued the people from all the false gods in the land? What's on their mind when they come and talk to Jesus? Well, the same thing that was on Jesus' mind and lips to the disciples just a few days before, the day of his departure. They're talking about the cross. They're talking about Jerusalem. They're talking about burial. They're talking about what is it, this unfolding plan of redemption that Jesus is working out. They spoke about his passion, his suffering, his rejection, his death, and his resurrection to redeem for himself what the law could not. To reveal to them what no searching could ever reveal, the God who is actually there. By his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Peter's standing there. He's amazed. And he suggests, why don't we, um, why don't we build some tents so that the holy ones, the saints, the representatives of God could tabernacle with us. We'll, we'll stay here. Let, let's build a tent for glory to remain among us. Now, it says that Peter didn't know what was going on. He didn't understand what to say. We can cut him a little bit of slack here. In fact, Peter was right. He was on to something to expect that God would again dwell with his people. And when he saw Moses, and when he saw Elijah standing there with their rabbi, Jesus, they thought, oh, the glory of God has come to dwell among us in his representatives. Again. And there was his error. He was right to expect that God would again tabernacle. He would build his tent again with his people but he thought it would again be through a representative like Moses or Elijah. What Peter failed to recognize is that's what Jesus is. John goes explicit with it. 
He calls Jesus. He says that Jesus has come to tabernacle among us. His flesh is the tent of God in the midst of the people. He's looking at Moses and Elijah and saying, finally the glory has come. Jesus is glowing. Glory has come. Elijah and Moses, they're about to disappear. And who remains? God with us. He's already got a tent. The tent of his flesh. Jesus is God's dwelling with us. Friends, that is very present. That is very present help. We're told in this passage that there's a cloud and a voice. Look at verse 7 with me. A cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The glory of the Lord had settled on the mountain. The cloud is a common image in the Old Testament to represent the glory of God filling a place. The glory of God was there on the mountain. What the disciples were just beginning to understand is that the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. They glimpsed it. They did not fully understand it even yet. Jesus knows they don't understand. He'll give indication of that in just a moment. But he's revealing what we see later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the creator God has shown in our hearts. And what does he give? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, the Messiah. If you want to have glory shine, if you want to see the glory of God who is there, look at Jesus. If you want to hear from God, listen to him. That's what God the Father says. This is my son. Jesus is singled out. He didn't say to Moses, He didn't say it of Elijah. He said of Jesus, this is my son. Peter himself unpacks and explains what happened that day on the mountain. Peter, in his writing of the letter, 2 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, Peter unpacks for us what he came to understand about this experience. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, and he records for us here, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain because he brought us up there. And the Father affirmed to us, listen to the Son, and he will reveal the glory of redemption. They were eyewitnesses of majesty. And what does the Father say? He says, listen to them. This is a more more than an instruction for ears, okay? This is a command that is more than an instruction for for vibrations that happen in this organ of your body. 
It's clear indication that Jesus is someone specific in redemptive history to which the people of God were specifically instructed and awaited to hear. In Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, we quoted this last week as well. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the father says, yeah, you've been waiting for this for a long time. Listen. Here the father is telling us to give our faith that this is the object of our long-awaited advent hope. Our attention and our trust should be in the words and works of the Messiah. We do not have faith in our logical solutions to philosophical puzzles. I see a lot of people ruminating and thinking and then posting and expecting that people ought to listen. I see a lot of people coming up with all kinds of very clever and sometimes quite ingenious ideas. We don't have faith in those ideas that soothe our conscience, bring comfort to our emotionally distraught life, We do not have faith in a permissive God who affirms our every moral whim, though the God of our stomach cries out for us to listen. Our appetites. We have faith in what the Lord has revealed. He's told us about himself. And he's told us about the rescue of his gospel in the singular object and substance of our faith, Jesus Christ, and his perfect work. Given the context of the transfiguration, we ought to ask, when the father says, this is my son, listen to him, what's he referring to? What are they to listen to? I mean, the most obvious answer would be, you know, everything. But the context is that the son of man must suffer. That's the most recent thing that that Jesus has told them, and that they would suffer if they follow after him. Listen to him. He's not lying. It's true. You're right that he's the Messiah, and I revealed that to you. And Jesus is right that he will suffer. It's even the topic of the conversation of Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Listen to him. Jesus, glorified on the mountain, then walks back down the mountain to Jerusalem and suffering. Friends, that is the most unexpected thing about this passage. The expectation was that the Messiah would essentially do the same thing that Moses and Elijah did that day. That he would come from glory, anointed by the Father, and that he would ascend to glory on this earth, perhaps, but ultimately over the kingdom of God. Moses and Elijah did on that day. They returned to glory. But Jesus stopped glowing, And he just wearing some clothes, probably dirty. And he walked back down the mountain and he made his way to Jerusalem. That is what was unexpected. It was misunderstood. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me. They were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Essentially what Jesus is saying, listen. That's what the father said, right? Listen, don't speak. Why? Why in the world would you not tell people about the God who is there? 
and that he's spoken and he's revealed himself to us. Let us tell you all about Jesus. Why? Because you need to hear, understand, and believe the suffering of the Son of Man, and you don't do that yet. You're amazed that you see a glowing Messiah, but you still don't truly understand because you have not yet seen the suffering Son of Man. And to speak, listen, to speak the gospel that ignores, de-emphasizes, misunderstands the sufferings of the cross is a word better left unspoken. A gospel presentation without the center of the gospel, the suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection of our Savior is no gospel at all. Shut up. This is what Jesus says. Don't tell anyone. You don't get it yet. You have no good news yet to share. You don't understand. Jesus gives a gag order of sorts. But it's interesting because he gives a gag order that has a limit. After the resurrection, they must speak, for then they will know. Don't tell anyone until I've risen. And then, you know, tell everyone. And he's going to come back and he's going to reemphasize it after the resurrection. He's going to tell, yeah, go tell everyone. You got it now, right? There are two quotes from James Edwards in his commentary, pillar commentary, that I want to draw your attention to. The first is this. Jesus' instruction to tell no one reinforces that the cross and resurrection are the only vantage point from which Jesus' life and ministry can be understood according to their divine purpose. And that until the cross and resurrection, all other knowledge of Jesus is inadequate and peripheral. To understand Jesus but not understand his cross and resurrection is to misunderstand Jesus. The teachings, the miracles, amazing. But they're just pointers. The cross and the resurrection are the point. Note that Jesus keeps the disciples with him. Jesus is the one who has called him. They've followed him. They've confessed him. But they haven't fully understood him. So surely he's done with them, right? Man, how often do we feel like that? How often that, is that sort of our experience of life as disciples? I, yeah, God, I, I confess to you. I, I remember walking with you a few times. I, I've sought after you, but I've made such a mess of things lately. Surely you're done with me, right? I do not yet understand. But what does he do? He keeps them close. Very present help. What a comfort. Again, James Edwards says this. Once again, Mark reminds readers that disciples are not in fellowship with Jesus because of their knowledge, virtue, and abilities. Remember, we don't go and discover God and then latch on. He reveals himself to us, draws near to us, and redeems. They are in fellowship solely because of Jesus' sovereign call, and they remain in fellowship only because of his faithfulness to them. Who keeps us in Jesus? Our knowledge of him? Uh, and here's one. Our usefulness to him? No. His faithfulness then, now, and always to us. Great is his faithfulness. He draws near to his disciples. 
before we close out this passage, there's just a few things that we need to note, sort of a couple details that are at the end of our passage. We'd, we'd be making a mistake to pass over. Look at verse 11 with me. They asked him, as he's drawing close to them, walking close to him, he puts up with their questions. Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? What's interesting is verse 11 is an indirect way of his disciples suggesting that glory, not suffering, should be the next big step in redemption. Shouldn't Elijah come? And didn't we like kind of see him up there? And now the day of the Lord, right? Let's go. Malachi 4.5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Elijah's coming, and so everything is going to be great, right? Judgment for enemies, rescue for Israel. Jesus says in verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus will come back to this in a second, but the important thing is that the Son of Man must suffer. Here Jesus is most assuredly not referring to Malachi, but he's referring to the suffering servant, the man of sorrows and the prophetic writings of Isaiah. And he says, not only must Elijah come, verse 13, I tell you that Elijah has come. He has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased. As, as it is written of him. Here Jesus is referring to John the Baptist. John was the fulfillment of the prophecy of the one who comes before the Lord to prepare the way. And Elijah doesn't come in great glory. He came with camel's hair clothing, eating locusts in the desert, crying out to prepare the way for the Lord in repentance. And they did whatever they pleased with him. What pleased him was to behead him. Let's remember that the Gospel of Mark is first written to Christians, Jews and Gentiles, in Rome that are suffering under brutal persecution of the enemies of God. And what Mark is communicating by recording this for them is that like they did to the precursor of the Messiah, so too they would do to the Messiah, whatever they pleased. And they will do to those who follow after him but you're in good company with the messiah and he's going to unpack for us that it is true that the messiah would suffer would be rejected would die but you can see mark is itching to tell us rise he will rise as will john the baptist as will those who follow after him. To suffer at the hands of the world is not evidence that God has abandoned us. Rather, it's the way of the prophets. It's the way of the Messiah. It's the way of the disciples. It is a very present reality. And it's a very present help that God is with us right there. I would just offer two primary applications. They're the same things that we've already seen. That Peter is right to call Jesus the Christ. We ought to join him. This is the next step in redemptive history. He is the fulfillment of the prophets. But none of the disciples yet fully understood that Jesus is far more than another step in redemptive history. Like there's Elijah, and then there's the prophet, and then there's the coming of the day of the Lord. No, Jesus is the coming of the dwelling of the Lord. 
Jesus is the revelation of the glory of God. Through the way that Jesus would bring final redemption, it's far different than what they expected. That what Jesus would bring is not redemption from foreign oppressors. What Jesus would bring is not redemption from false gods out there. He would bring redemption, deliverance from our own sin. That by his death, we could be purified. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, and his kingship is to reign over sin, death, and the devil, to put them down in us and for us, to suffer in our place that we might be forgiven and raised with him. Secondly, Jesus is right that the Son of Man must suffer. Jesus has testified that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise. Moses and Elijah, they've come to speak to him about these things. The Father in heaven himself testifies that the disciples should listen to him when he says that. The question for you and me this morning is simple. Do you listen? Are you listening? Do you understand? When we search the scriptures, we're often looking for comfort and rescue. I mean, am I right? How many times have you and I done this? I'm not really in any Bible reading plan right now. Actually, I kind of feel guilty about that. And I haven't been very faithful, but I really need help today because it's been hard. Right? What are we looking for? Comfort. Rescue. Do we understand the pattern here? Suffering that has driven you to go like this? That suffering is not the opposite of rescue. Do you understand that suffering is not the lack of God's presence? It's grace that you would go like this at all. That you would be driven to seek him. And what you're going to find is a suffering Messiah who suffered in your place and he is very real and present with you in your suffering. You ought to cry out for relief. But friends, there's no greater relief than to see God. To have him right there. That it's often right in the midst of our suffering that God is really applying his redemptive work, which so often reveals who he is and the nature of his suffering in our place. Do we also understand and anticipate resurrection and glory? Do we anticipate it? Do we long not just for comfort now, but glory that is to come at the return of our Savior? We ought not overemphasize suffering as though it were the end and the purpose of the gospel. There is a fourth step. Yes, there's suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. Glory. We ought to close with song. The Son of Man will suffer, be rejected, killed, and rise. What is the outcome of the suffering Messiah's work? It's life. Jesus has secured life for those who follow after him. Even if for a little while in this life we suffer like him. And the scriptures are filled with that testimony. The final application for us is Jesus said, be quiet. Don't tell anyone until I rise. And you know what he did? That's past tense. He's, he's rose. He rose. And now what his 
what should his disciples do? Tell people. We're released from the gag order, people. You're free to speak of glory. You're free to speak about the nature of the Christ, his miracles, his comfort, his presence, his dwelling with us, and his glowing glory, and his resurrection. Go and speak. Friends, we have seen and we've heard through these faithful witnesses. Now we must speak that others would come to listen to Jesus by faith. Go, make disciples. Heavenly Father, I thank you that this morning I, I trust that your word is working to reveal yourself to the people gathered in this room that you would make disciples. You are the disciple maker. You're the one who calls and keeps. I pray that you would call this morning, that you would draw near. I pray for those who are suffering, that you would draw near, that you would be very present and they would remember that you're well proved and Lord I pray that we would see in you that we have been rescued that we're not awaiting wondering how God will rescue but we can see it in the cross and resurrection and you are alive and you have secured for us life that we can look at the resurrection and not see something that is promised but something that is secured thank you for our perspective on this scripture, that we can see it as fulfilled. And Lord, I pray that you would work in the midst of your church, that we could go with word of the fulfillment of the gospel in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would create worship in us, that we could worship as a people who have seen glory, as a people who know the presence of our God in this, these light and momentary afflictions. And Lord, that we would long for you to return, and we would be filled with joy at the already present presence of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.